This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to World Shared Practices Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. And I'm here today with Dr. Robert Tasker, who is Professor of Neurology and Anesthesia at Harvard Medical School and Chair of Neurocritical Care at Boston Children's Hospital. Our topic today is Neurocritical Care for the Pediatric Patient After Cardiac Arrest. Part of World Shared Practices Forum is to hear from an international expert but just as much it's for us to exchange knowledge about what you're doing out there. So throughout the video, we will periodically be pausing and asking you to leave a comment as to what your practice is in your city and your location. So we look forward to hearing your ideas and making this a real exchange of ideas. Robert, what's new in neurocritical care and the care of a pediatric patient after cardiac arrest in the literature over the last several years that we should be aware of? Uh, thank you, Jeff. Um, what I'd like to do is uh, perhaps just provide a context. And if we just bring up the first slide, uh, what you will see on the top of the slide is the uh, pediatric Utstein style definition for cardiac arrest. And then below that, you'll see a, a sort of data summary for most of the series before 2007 of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in children. So the incidence is uh, under 20 per 100,000 child population per year. The major causes are uh, sudden infant death syndrome, trauma, chronic disease, and pneumonia. And the outcomes, as you will see there, are poor, with only about a 5% survival. Latterly, we've thought about the resuscitation in terms of pre-arrest, the no-flow situation, the low-flow, and then the post-resuscitation. And what I'd like to focus on is that post-resuscitation period and what's new, uh, what have we learned in the last year. Uh, a new idea, uh, and I, I like the terminology here, is emergency neurologic life support, ENLS. So we've got our own equivalent to ACLS, and now it's ENLS. Uh, this is from uh, a paper concerning adult neurocritical care written by Rittenberger and colleagues last year. And it describes a continuum from scene to critical care, the concept of bundled care for neurocritical care in this setting, and the use of checklists, case selection, physiologic targets, and seizure control. So I think, uh, for me, this is probably the biggest thing that's new, is systematizing what we do, Ra rather like our approach to sepsis, ventilator-associated pneumonia and lung injury, doing something similar for emergency neurologic life support and taking a pediatric spin on that. Um, I just want to highlight uh, two papers that came out last year, and they're to do with oxygenation uh, targets and ventilation post-arrest in the pediatric population. 
and there were seemingly uh, disparate results in these two papers. The first, uh, they both looked at uh, PaO2 in the first blood gas after resuscitation, and one study was from the Ibero-American uh, Network with, uh, this was a prospective study with over 200 patients, and the mortality in this group was 40%. There were 9% of the subjects who had a PaO2 greater than 300 on their first blood gas, 26% less than 60, and these authors found there was no association between high PaO2 and poor outcome or death. You contrast this with a retrospective study published in circulation from the UK Pediatric Intensive Care Audit Network database. Uh, this has an eight-fold increase in the number of patients, but surprisingly the outcome in mortality is very similar to the Ibero-American network. And looking at the uh, cross-sectional data, uh, PaO2 was greater than 300 in 11%, 60 to 300, 65%, less than 60, 24%, so very similar uh, breakdown of data to the Ibero-American. But in contrast with an eight-fold increase in patients, this study actually found that there was a relationship between increasing hyperoxia uh, and the odds ratio for mortality. It's modest. Uh, at 600 millimeters of mercury, it would be 1.25 with a 95% confidence interval of roughly 1.2 to 1.4. So I think we're still left in the dark as to what target to use. Uh, the UK data suggests that the findings in children are very similar to the findings in adults. The smaller data set from the Ibero-American suggests that perhaps children are different. Um, I think the bottom line is that we keep patients above 60 TOR and probably ought to avoid greater than 300 TOR. So I think for me those are the main big messages from 2012 as to what we should be doing uh, differently. A systematized approach and thinking more about our physiologic targets. Um, the systematized approach is very interesting and it makes a lot of sense, but I haven't heard you mention anything about hypothermia in that systematized approach. Yeah. Um, as you are aware, um, we don't practice hypothermia as routine for our post-cardiac arrest patients. And um, in the U.S. at the moment and in Canada, there are 30 centers in recruiting to the therapeutic hypothermia after pediatric cardiac arrest study. It behoves us to wait until we see the outcome of these data before actually doing anything, in my view. Uh, as you'll see on this slide, earlier this year, uh, the FAPCO group published the vanguard phase of their experience uh, in pediatric critical care medicine. You can have a look at the FAPGAR group's website to look at how they're getting on with recruitment and the study protocol. And you can also look at clinicaltrials.gov 
uh, and this is the registration number for the study, to actually get updates on the study. This study isn't going to be finished until 2015, and so in my view, we have to wait until then. Uh, I do, however, know that some people around the world are using hypothermia for cardiac arrest, and um, this is perhaps two studies that may be of interest to people watching uh, these rounds. There's a Cochrane review of pediatric cardiac arrest and therapeutic hypothermia that was published earlier this year, covering data from 1923 to December 2011. There are no published randomized or quasi-randomized controlled trials. There are four ongoing RCTs, and there are 18 non-randomized studies. And at the moment, the Cochrane reviewers uh, come to the conclusion that no recommendations are possible. Uh, the same authors have also published earlier this year in the Emergency Medicine Journal a survey on therapeutic hypothermia for post-cardiac arrest in children. And approaching this from the continuum concept, they've gone to ED uh, departments as well as pediatric intensive care units to look at uh, whether or not any departments are actually considering hypothermia given that these same departments, ED departments, would use hypothermia for adults. Are they considering it in children? Uh, about a third of these ED departments would consider it for children and um, they also would support a UK randomized controlled trial with deferred consent. So I, th uh, I think we get a sense that it is happening out there on an ad hoc basis. Um, it's not our practice to, to do that. Rather, we try and avoid hyperthermia. And I think we have to be patient about waiting for the results of the study or being part of a study. Could I press you a little bit on your individual practice? Um, you said that you avoid hyperthermia. Uh, what would you consider a threshold for hyperthermia, and, and what, what threshold do you keep the patient below? And secondarily, if the patient arrives spontaneously cool, hypothermic, uh, with a temperature of 33, 34 degrees uh, Celsius, do you actively warm them uh, to 36 degrees, or do you allow them to warm on their own? What is your practice in both regards? Um, so we try and keep patients below 37 degrees and we don't actively warm them if they come in cool. So you would allow them to spontaneously, spontaneously warm themselves. So it sounds like uh, in your personal practice it's the avoidance of hyperthermia at yeah. all costs is the uh, most certain clinical practice that you have. Yeah. But whether they should be cooled or not, as is, you said, awaiting the research. Yeah. I wonder if we could pause now and ask what your practice is around the world. Uh, first, could you tell us um, what city your pediatric intensive care unit is in? And the first question is, uh, does your center uh, use uh, induced hypothermia for the pediatric patient after cardiac arrest? And if so, uh, what degree temperature do you target? And secondly, the second question is, if the patient arrives spontaneously cool with a temperature of 33 or 34 degrees centigrade, do you actively warm the patient to uh, 36 or 37 degrees, 
or as Dr. Tasker said, do you allow the patient to um, uh, regain their own body temperature um, over time without active rewarming? We're back now. Uh, Robert, I wonder if we could turn now to imaging, uh, certainly in anyone's clinical practice, but also in terms of a, a review of the evidence. What kind of imaging should we be getting on the patient, the pediatric patient after cardiac arrest, and when should we be getting the imaging, and what are we looking for, in particular, uh, for guidance on, on uh, the patient's overall course? Thank you. Initially, I think that the, the main imperative is to sort out whether or not the individual that's in front of you has a surgical lesion that needs to be addressed. And in most centers, uh, this will require a CT scan that you can get done almost immediately at presentation in the emergency department. And if you look at this slide that I'm showing now, this is uh, a young individual who uh, has had a cardiac arrest, and this is the initial CT scan. And what we're looking for is whether or not there is any evidence of uh, an intracranial hematoma, uh, something that we would need to ask a surgeon to uh, come and evacuate. Um, beyond that, there is um, very little utility in imaging very early on. Uh, the evidence from previous years would uh, point to the, uh, the idea that you should wait until day three if what you want to try and identify is whether or not this individual has brain swelling or cerebral edema. Uh, of course, with the advent of MRIs, and the uh, ability to uh, do this investigation very early on, we can actually see much more. So again, this is the CT scan very early on, this is the MRI, and you can pick up already this individual has some tonsillar herniation. On uh, the left-hand side of the slide, you'll see there's information about anatomy, and on the right-hand side of the slide, there's information about magnetic resonance imaging. Magnetic resonance imaging, uh, we can look at different sequences or different techniques. Uh, at the end of the day, what is being looked at here is water. And we can use T1-weighted imaging, and this has short repetition and echo times, and it provides very high resolution and gives you good resolution for gray-white matter differentiation. T2-weighted imaging has a long repetition time and echo time, and this is very good for looking at tissue edema and water. And water in its pure form is 50, mil, 50 molar concentration. If the brain is 80% uh, water, you're looking at 80 molar concentration. And so this is a huge signal in the MR signal. So we, th this is why T2 is, is so good for looking at edema. The third component is to use diffusion weighted imaging. And before I get to that, perhaps we should just f uh, flick across and look at the information on the left-hand side, the neuroanatomy. 
So if you take one cubic millimeter of cortex, that has 10 to the 7 neurons. Cell bodies in that one millimeter of cortex would represent about 12% of the tissue, and neuropil about 88%, and the extracellular space roughly a fifth of the volume, 20%. So if we consider neuronal morphometrics, just to remind everybody, a cell body is of the order of 10 microns, and an axon diameter is about one-tenth of this at 0.9 microns. Now let's think about the diffusion of water in solution. And in two dimensions, water would on average move about one micrometer squared per millisecond. MR uses a relaxation time of the order of 20 to 80 milliseconds, which means that if you convert that diffusion distance to a length scale rather than two-dimensional space, we're talking about a scale of 5 to 20 microns which of course now is of the order of a cell body. So we can begin to look at water diffusion at a cellular level. Now, using the apparent diffusion coefficient, which is not exactly the same as the diffusion coefficient that we're used to in pure solution, but it's a best estimate, we can look at whether this is reduced or increased. And in cytotoxic edema, the diffusion coefficient of water is decreased because the extracellular space is decreased because intracellular volume has increased in size. So returning to the right-hand panel, we can look at the apparent diffusion coefficient. We can also use mean diffusivity as a vector and break that down into three eigenvectors on the x, y, and z, or z axis. And we can use that data to calculate an entity called trace, which is a summary of the diffusion. Now, uh, that's a long-winded way to talk about the next few slides. And uh, those that are watching this may be interested to look at Erica Fink's recent publication in Neurocritical Care using these type of techniques in children post-cardiac arrest. And there's a paper in adults from 2009 by Widgman in Annals of Neurology. Now let me illustrate some of this. On the top row, you will see T1, MR, which is very good for looking at gray-white differentiation. And this is an individual post-cardiac arrest, and you can see the CSF spaces, gray-white differentiation very clearly. This is the T2 trace in the lower panel, or the lower row, and this is telling you where diffusion is restricted, where water is where it shouldn't be. And as you can see, uh, as you go across, uh, each individual panel is below, uh, below the uh, above T1 is the same section. You can see going from left to right, 
that we have restricted diffusion uh, at the point of the uh, anterior and middle cerebral artery border zone and the perirolandic cortex. We, in the second, we have the restricted diffusion in the posterior cerebral artery distribution. And in the third panel, we see basal ganglia involved. So these are recognized as preferentially vulnerable tissue. And this is uh, an idea of the extent of injury that you can get um, post-cardiac arrest that you can appreciate on the diffusion that you can't see, uh, sorry, on the trace that you can't see on the T1. Taking this one step further and using the apparent co uh, diffusion coefficient, as you recall, what we're going to be concerned about is low ADC. And this is from the Widgman paper showing you three cases with diffusion-weighted imaging on the left-hand side of the screen, ADC map on the right-hand side of the screen. If you focus on the bottom panel, this is an individual, 67 hours post-cardiac arrest, who has intact brainstem function on day three, but extensive posturing, absent cortical somatosensory evoked potentials, and as shown by the red and yellow distribution on the ADC map, this is where the ADC value is less than 650, and 35% of the brain has this low ADC. If you compare that with the upper two, you see there's very little low ADC signal, and it's of the order of 2 to 6% in patients with very different outcomes. So that's the, the type of information that you can get uh, from MR. And um, I think we'll see more of this as we progress. Now, how you use this information and, and how it helps you, I think it's a way of stratifying the severity of patient that you have in front of you very early on within the first uh, two to three days. And that, uh, I think, in the future may lead to different stratifications in terms of therapeutic intervention. So if I could, um, <clears throat> in your practice, uh, you know, the traditional teaching that I've received in the last several years is um, MR at day three and, and MRI imaging at day seven. But um, I'm wondering now, from this research, what would be your practice today um, on a patient, a pediatric patient after cardiac arrest, and you want an image to assess their function? Uh, what day is your first exam? Is it an MR? And uh, when is your follow-up exam? So uh, invariably patients that we receive uh, have had a CT scan in the emergency department uh, or before coming to us to exclude a surgical lesion. Um, providing there isn't a surgical lesion, our next approach would be some form of imaging on day three and our preference would be for an MR. Uh, the next logical stages for doing imaging would be either day seven or day 14. And MR or CT, does MR, it matter? MR. MR. Um, we can perhaps talk on another occasion about the risk benefits of CT 
and the um, radiation exposure. Um, but uh, I think for the, for the purposes of, of what we're using, both from the risk benefit and the information gained, MR uh, is our preference. I wonder if we could stop now and um, ask uh, you to contribute to the conversation. Could you leave a comment and tell us what city uh, your pediatric intensive care unit is in? And um, do your, does your center follow the practice just outlined by Dr. Tasker, uh, which is to typically get imaging on day three and day seven or 14 of life? Um, and if you do not follow that imaging practice for the pediatric patient after cardiac arrest, uh, could you tell us briefly what your imaging uh, modality is and what, um, what your sequence of imaging is uh, over that time period? We're back now. Uh, Dr. Tasker, I wonder if we could move towards uh, prognostication. Uh, because clearly we're examining the patient every day, we're getting the imaging modalities that you've just described because we're trying to determine what's the neurologic status of our patient and when we can make some prognostication for the family as to the likely outcome for this patient. This has got to be one of the most difficult decisions we face as pediatric intensivists. So could we talk about the recent literature on uh, when and uh, to what degree of certainty you can prognosticate and, and perhaps talk about your practice as well? Thank you. Uh, you're right in that this is a, a difficult area, and I think it's a definite area that we need to systematize our approach and be consistent. And uh, I just illustrate it by this example, as you'll see on a slide. So this is an individual who's had cardiac arrest out of hospital at six hours post-resuscitation, both pupils are unresponsive. Um, subsequently, they become minimally reactive. The um, individual is breathing, but they don't have a corneal response, a cough, an oculocephalic response. Uh, they have no motor response to pain, but posturing can be elicited. Uh, and that's of the um, decerebrate type. Then at 24, to, 24 hours to three days, patients unresponsive with pinpoint pupils, breathing but absent corneals, gag, cold calorics, no motor response. At two weeks, the patient's still unresponsive with no eye opening, abnormal cold calorics, and no motor response. And looking at the imaging that you see on the left, uh, this is the diffusion and when you put all of this together, uh, it looks terrible. But how do we systematize our approach and how do we get consistent in what we have to say here? Um, I show this slide. Um, the top panel is from uh, an old paper of two individuals that I worked with, not in 1968, I have to add. Uh, in 1982, Giuseppe Pampiglioni and Anne Harden. And this was published in, in The Lancet. And this uh, study shows the four post-resuscitation EEG patterns within nine hours of uh, return circulation. And 
What we've traditionally thought is that this third pattern here of intermittent activity associated with myoclonus to be universally poor in outcome. What we're learning now is that, uh, and this is from a paper that was published last year by Lucas and colleagues in resuscitation in adults, is that neurologic recovery after therapeutic hypothermia in patients exhibiting this post-cardiac arrest myoclonic pattern isn't always uh, desperate or bleak. And um, a lot of the data that has informed us in the past has been based on the pre-hypothermia uh, literature. And what we've learned over the last year to two years is we're going to have to scale back what we've thought because of hypothermia. And some patterns that we thought were of desperate outcome might not necessarily be the case. So now let's just take that one step further. Uh, these are the stages of profound post-anoxic coma and the case example that I illustrated to you is the eyes-closed coma. One stage beyond that is the vegetative state and in the post-cardiac arrest uh, we talk about this repertoire of behaviors persisting uh, beyond uh, a month being categorized as persistent and then at some stage later we talk about permanent vegetative state. This is the data or these are the data that we've used traditionally in helping us systematize our approach. Day 1, day 3 and day 14 examination and this was from the Levy paper in JAMA in 1985 and uh, what I've done here is convert the data from the paper to pre-test pre probability and post-test probability of either death or vegetative state at one year. So in an adult who has fixed dilated pupils post-cardiac arrest on day one, their post-test -pro probability of this, these poor outcomes is 96%. On day three, if you have a motor response that's worse than withdrawal, your post-test probability of poor outcome is 93%. On day 14, if you have abnormal oculocephalic and no eye opening or motor response, your post-test probability to these three tests combined of poor outcome is 100%. So we've used these type of data to inform us and help us assess patients and have discussions with families. There are now papers that are coming out that show that this approach in someone uh, who has had therapeutic hypothermia uh, may not be reliable, that we cannot use these post-test probabilities, that they're probably different. Uh, there's also another complication, and I put this down as other reading, which uh, you can uh, look at if you're interested. The first is uh, what we've learned very recently, that we need to focus on the disposition of drugs that we use 
morphine, midazolam, fentanyl, and propofol. Uh, we don't use propofol, but some centers do, and ad adults do. Um, that um, the disposition of these drugs is influenced by hypothermia, so that you can't rely on assumptions about normal pharmacokinetics when you're making decisions about patients. Uh, they, may, they may have retained significant levels within brain tissue that influences the examination. And there's a paper about this in the last year. And lastly, uh, there are some parallel publications in Annals of Neurology, Pediatrics, and Critical Care Medicine as, on an, as an update on the 1987 task force recommendations for brain death with the new guidelines for determination of brain death. So putting all of this together, um, my feeling is that we have to be cautious in um, our approach to prognostication, particularly uh, now that we're, some centers and some people are doing new things like hypothermia, uh, different drugs. Um, we have to give it time and use as much information that we can glean as possible, the MR, the clinical examination. Robert, thank you very much for that um, excellent overview of the literature as it exists today. Um, can I ask, first of all, a follow-up on um, the Lucas paper and um, your comments just now about um, having caution in this era of trials of hypothermia. Do I understand you correctly to mean that uh, your concern is twofold? One is that hypothermia may be confounding the examination that we used to rely on in the evidence that you pointed from the Lancet and the JAMA article, and that also, as well, what you're stating is that there's uh, some preliminary data that's justifying the THAPCA trial, but until the THAPCA trial comes out, we don't know the benefit of hypothermia. Am I correct in rephrasing it that way? Yes. <clears throat> so um, the day one and the day three examination uh, are confounded by hypothermia and probably by the medications that we give uh, or potentially give during hypothermia. So uh, it really shifts the examination to the later time point, uh, and from the Levy data, we're talking about 14 days. Um, we don't know whether or not hypothermia works and whether uh, there is a potential benefit, and that is also possible, uh, that, uh, that uh, a treatment effect might also be confounding uh, the information. Uh, so, yes, on those points. I understand. Now, can I ask you this? Um, uh, as as you uh, well understand um, and have explained, uh, there's still much that we don't know about uh, treatments that may have be of benefit and um, the difficulty in prognosticating in any individual case. And I can imagine that it, it, at one extreme, your position may be, because we don't have certain data, your personal practice is to always recommend that we continue life-saving treatments and wait for longer-term outcomes. And I can imagine other people would equally interpret this limitation of evidence at this time to still uh, believe that they can reach a point where a recommendation should be made to withhold or withdraw life-staying treatment in some of these cases. Could you describe for us what your personal practice is? 
Of course, we do limit and withdraw treatment in some patients. And my personal practice is that this is a, a conversation and a journey that we have with families, that we um, uh, speak very openly about the data and what we actually know and what we don't know. Um, based on the information and the examination, we can talk about a pretest probability of death that might be as high as 80 percent. And for some families, um, that's sufficient to say, uh, given the context of uh, whether or not the child has other illnesses or chronic uh, uh, disease or problems, uh, that uh, for some families, they may say, this, this is enough now. Uh, and, but we have to have the conversation. Um, now, uh, does MR help us in that? Sometimes it does. When we see some of the patterns that uh, uh, we've seen in patients with devastating disease that others have confirmed in the literature, so looking at the data that I showed you from Widgman and uh, Erica Fink, um, we can bring all of that together to uh, provide an honest simulation of the information uh, that we've got. Uh, and then having presented that, yes, uh, there are occasions when we limit and withdraw treatment. There are other occasions where um, families ask us to carry on and uh, sadly in some of the, or in many of those settings of, of the examination that I've described, patients progress to brain death and uh, at that point uh, we stop treatment. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Tasker, for um, your overview and your willingness to share uh, your personal practice with us. I think we can all agree that this is, uh, again, one of the most difficult contexts that we face in caring for critically ill children, and uh, we appreciate uh, your expertise in sharing it with us today. And if there are any other questions uh, that you have for Dr. Tasker, uh, please leave a comment now, and uh, we will try to address these in uh, upcoming videos. But beyond that, if there are any other topics in neurocritical care that you believe we should be discussing on World Shared Practices Forum, please leave a comment now or in the future, and uh, we will certainly be considering those uh, for future modules. Again, thank you, uh, Robert, for this wonderful presentation. Thank you. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.